You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So, so this past Monday, uh, my wife and I were uh, sitting on our couch watching Netflix, um, and it was around 8.30 p.m., and one of our neighbors uh, came and, and knocked on our door, kind of, kind of, kind of scared us. He was knocking pretty hard, and I was like, what's, you know, what's going on? We live in the hood, so um, anything can happen. We've seen it all happen already, uh, first week. So that we were there, we, ambulances and people getting shot. Anyway, um, so we heard this guy knock on our door, this, the neighbor of ours, uh, becoming a good friend of ours. Uh, and the moment I, I saw his face when I opened the door, I saw that he was on the verge of tears. Um, and we sat down and I asked him what was going on. And I kind of know the, the backstory. He's going through really tough time with his marriage. His, his wife left him um, and because, because of things that he's done. And, uh, and he's trying to get his life back together. And so we sat and, we, and I heard you know, where he was at and he shared and he kind of vented uh, where he was at. Um, and I've shared the gospel several times with him. Um, I know I have an open door to, to call him to faith in Christ. We've done that. We've established that. Um, but, but, but this time was, was different. This conversation really stuck with me, especially as I began to prep for this sermon throughout the week. And I'll tell you why. Because as I began to point him to the hope of the gospel, as I began to point him to the fact that he can do nothing to save himself, to change himself, he'd take a few minutes uh, to pause. And then he's, he's culturally a, a, a Roman Catholic. And, and he would look at me and say, yes, you're... You're right, Carlos, I need to put myself back together. I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Uh, I need to change. I need to go to confession and see a priest. I need to partake of the Eucharist. And he began to lay out all these things that he needed to do right after I had shared the gospel of free grace to him. Um, And so I, I labored that night to try to explain to him, no, it's not by what you can do. It's by the work that Christ has done surrender surrender and 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 it was he was he was in a place where he was tired of 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 living uh, according to his own way but is is still is still struggling with fully surrendering to god and and as i was studying this text and this story um the 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 the, the doctrine of of being justified by faith alone it, it struck me that uh that i'm not so different from my my neighbor from our neighbor and to be honest, all of us here are no different than our neighbor. Uh, the moment we hear uh, the gospel of free grace, we might believe it and, and, and cling to it. Um, but as, as the hymn says, we're prone to wander away from that truth. And, and, and though mentally we might agree with correct uh, theology, functionally at times we begin to, to live our life as if we are trying to earn a standing with God that we've already been freely given. And so my hope this, this morning, um, as, as we see Paul destroy this kind of thinking in this passage, my hope is that just like the Spirit used this text to, to sink the gospel deeper into my heart, when I said my, my hope is that the Spirit would do the same uh, for all of you in this room here, even if it's for the very first time. This text will show us and teach us many things, but, but they're rooted in one essential truth, this, 
uh, overarching theme that uh, identity informs our activity. Our identity informs our activity. Uh, This is a, a vital truth to grasp, brothers and sisters, because if our identity is in things that change, things that fluctuate, things that pass away, then we're forced to use our activity to maintain our identity. Things that we do, we're forced to use the things that we do to to maintain a certain identity that we want. And and, and to be honest, um, all of us know how that feels, and and we know that we know that that treadmill of performance is 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 very exhausting. And so let's let's jump into um, the first uh, few verses here. Let me read them for us. It says, "But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself." fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So in, in this story, you know, now um, Paul is, has just shared, and we heard last week from Reed, right? Uh, Paul shared the story of him going to Jerusalem out of his commitment for the unity of the church under the one true gospel. And that same commitment that he had in going to Jerusalem is the same commitment that he had that caused him to confront Peter to his face publicly. And, and we'll see that here. Um, his uh, unwavering commitment to preserving uh, this, this gospel, this one true gospel, is what, is what pushed him to confront Peter. And, and really, uh, brothers and sisters, this is a pivotal moment in the history of the early church because there was so much pressure from uh, what, what are called Judaizers, right? Jewish professing Christians um, to, sum, to cause the Gentile Christians to submit themselves fully to the law of God to be justified. And if you know a bit about Antioch and the city of Antioch and the church at Antioch, if you've read the book of Acts, it, it makes sense that, that this tension between Jew and Gentile um, came to a head at this church here. Um, Antioch was a diverse city. Antioch had about 500,000 people living in it. Uh, of those 500,000 people, um, at least 10% were Jews. And in this church at Antioch, it was, it was kind of a multicultural melting pot of Jews, but also all kinds of Gentiles from different parts of kind of that, that region. And so you have Jews by birth, and you have what, 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 what their society would call Gentile sinners, um, members of the same church, who have historically uh, been at odds with one another. Now, under the gospel, as Paul told the Ephesians, that dividing wall has been broken. But it's one thing for that to be a reality theologically. It's quite another to begin to practice it when you're sitting next to someone who, since birth, you've been told is unclean. 
So this was happening at this church at Antioch. And so the Jews, uh, the, the Jewish Christians held their dietary restrictions and, and, and circumcision in high regard. And so they, they still, a lot of them still ate kosher. And so they, they abstained from certain foods. Um, I mean, you know, they, they didn't eat pork, they didn't eat shellfish, they didn't eat anything cooked with blood, things like that. While the Gentile Christians were, were eating up that pork, right? They were eating up, you know, uh, they, they, were, they were eating shrimp cocktails and stuff, right? I mean, so when you, when you look at the importance historically um, for the Jewish Christians to sit at a table with a Gentile uh, sinner, uh, you begin to see uh, why this created such tension. To the, to the Jewish uh, mindset, to sit and eat with a Gentile, even at the same table, was, was unclean. To, 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 to sit and eat with them was unclean. And this same mentality, that's this old mentality, was still infiltrating the minds of the Jewish Christians. This is why, brothers and sisters, when we read the Gospels, we see the religious Jewish leaders condemn Jesus. Why? What, is it, what does the Scripture say? It says that they uh, condemned him because Jesus sat and ate with tax collectors and sinners. So what sinners met in their society, in their culture, essentially, was someone who was not living under the law of Moses. So that could be a Gentile, so a non-Jew that was not living according to the law of Moses, but it could also mean a, 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 Jew, a Jew by birth that was lawless, that was not living in accordance with the law of God. They were seen as unclean, and Jesus uh, modeled uh, grace for us and sat with the tax collector who was essentially a, a traitor to the nation, um, uh, the people of God, and with these sinners. So sharing a meal was, as I said, important. And what can we learn from that? Just a, a nugget from that today. Um, to this day, um, uh, sharing a meal with someone, sitting at their table, being invited into um, an intimate space as their living room or as their dining room, sitting with them, still um, carries, especially in the Middle Eastern culture, uh, heavy weight. And, and it should for us as Christians as well, it, which is why uh, we're encouraged, right, to, to share a meal with one another after the end of the gathering. This is why we sit with each other and, 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 and eat together uh, with our parishes, because something happens when you share a meal with someone. When you sit with someone at a table and, and share a meal, uh, the, the, the playing fields are leveled. The rich and the poor, the outcast and the privileged, all are reminded of the fact that they need sustenance to live. And so we as Christians, um, modeling our lives after Christ, um, invite each other as brothers and sisters, but also those who are um, outside of the family of God to our table to dine with us much like uh, Jesus did. And so uh, moving on in this story, we find then uh, we find Peter eating with Gentile Christians. But as soon as those who are called uh, a certain men from James, which essentially were uh, fanboys of the Apostle James, um, but, but the Apostle James didn't uh, agree with what these men were doing. 
So once they came, Peter backed, backed away from the table uh, that he was eating with uh, the Gentiles at. He, he backs away um, and, he, and he acts out of hypocrisy. So much was his influence, right, as a pillar apostle, Peter, that he influenced other Jewish Christians to do the same. Even Barnabas, it says, was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. And, and that must have been a sting, a low blow to Paul. Why? Because it was Barnabas that first introduced Paul to the church at Jerusalem. It was, it was Barnabas that acted kind of as a bridge between, between Paul and the Jewish apostles at Jerusalem. And so now to, to see this man who was used uh, mightily by God to introduce Paul to the Jewish church now is also being led astray by this hypocrisy on behalf of Peter. But what's so astonishing, brothers and sisters, what's so surprising is that out of all the apostles, it was Peter who is, who is essentially uh, backing away from eating with Gentiles because there were you know, ju- uh, Judaizers around. Because it was Peter in Acts chapter 10 that was given a vision from God. And, and, and this vision essentially was God showing him um, a, bu- a bunch of unclean animals. And then God tells Peter, kill and eat. Peter responds, surprised and says, I've never put any unclean meat in my body, in my mouth. I've never eaten anything unclean. Why are you asking me to eat unclean meat? And and God responds to to Peter saying, don't call unclean what I have made clean. Then right after that, he's called to the house of a uh, a centurion uh, called, his name is uh, Cornelius. And so Cornelius was a fear of God, and he was wanting to hear about this gospel of Jesus. And so Peter goes into his home, preaches the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls, they're filled with the Spirit. Gentiles are filled with the Spirit, speak in tongues. And that's when this vision that God gave Peter makes sense. He, he realizes that those who have been historically called unclean, Peter ought not to call them unclean anymore if God has made them clean by his Spirit. So it was, it was Peter that received this vision from God, and yet we find him being the same apostle that's shrinking back from this truth that God revealed to him. And for Paul to have confronted Peter publicly to his face meant that the situation was of great significance. The fact that Peter did this during a time when, as I said, the Judaizers were trying to distort the gospel made it that much more important. See, although Paul opposed ethnic prejudice, and we see it very clearly, right, Jew and Gentile, although Paul opposed ethnic prejudice, and some Jewish professing Christians were were using uh, this false teaching as a defense for their racism, there's something deeper happening here. There was way more going on that Paul was fighting for. On the surface, it might look like an issue of unity between Jew and Gentile. But the deeper issue beneath the surface was this, that, the, that, that, that God, what God requires for salvation. The question of what God requires for salvation. And so this incident was a manifestation of an attempt to distort the gospel of free grace. And Paul knew that. 
which is why he shares this story right before jumping into the meat of explaining and expounding what it means to be made right with God on the basis of faith in what Christ has done. He uses this story to introduce um, this essential uh, Christian truth and doctrine. So protecting and, and preserving this essential truth, justification by faith alone, is the, really the driving force behind Paul's public rebuke of Peter. So let me read verses 15 and 16 for us. It says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so here, brothers and sisters, in verse 16, as I stated at the beginning of my sermon, we find the overarching theme of this letter, a kind of declaration of independence from a life of trying to earn our own right standing with God. And Paul tells the Galatians that even though he and Peter are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet they too must believe by faith in Christ for their justification, regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile. The only way to be made right with God is through faith alone in what Christ has done. And, and that's the very thing that was going against the grain for the Jewish Christians. Because to the Jewish mindset, that sounded like you were disregarding the law of God. So are you telling me that we throw the law of God away? Are you then telling us that obey, obeying the law doesn't matter? To them, that, that was what Paul was preaching. But of course, that was the distortion of the gospel that Paul was actually preaching. This, this truth of being made right with God purely by faith alone in Christ alone when that sinks deep into the hearts of the church, historically, when that truth has sunk deep into the hearts of the church around the world, it has brought life and freedom to who uh, Philip Ryken, a theologian, calls the recovering Pharisees. And brothers and sisters, if, if we're honest with ourselves here, we all have a recovering Pharisee in us. What does this doctrine mean? Justification by faith alone? It means that what Christ has done for you, he's done everything needed for you to be accepted by God, be brought into a right relationship with God. See, what we have to understand, brothers and sisters, is that God requires perfection from you and from me. For God to accept you, into his presence and into a right relationship with you, we must be perfect. The problem obviously is, right, that we're born sinners, but then after that, we keep on sinning. We can't go back into our mother's womb and somehow cause ourselves to be born perfect. But then also, the issue uh, is also that our sin requires punishment. So we stand before God helpless and hopeless to ever try to even earn a right standing with God because the issue 
is a sinful heart. And who can change a sinful heart? Which is why when Christ stepped in, brothers and sisters, he was born perfect, born of a virgin, which is a requirement. And then he lived perfectly under the law. So he perfectly obeyed the law of God, the law of Moses, in the place of those who trust in him. But not only that, he credits that perfection to those who trust in him. But then when he went up to the cross, the judgment that we deserve for our sin, the judgment we deserve for our disobedience and breaking uh, the law, Christ takes all of that upon himself and is punished and condemned in our place. And then after that, after he absorbs the wrath of God in the place of sinners, he rises again. He rose from the grave to defeat sin, Satan, and death and to, and to prove that he indeed was the Messiah. He did all of this, brothers and sisters, in the place of those who trust in him. And so his, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection is all credited to the one who simply puts their faith in him. This means that salvation was completely purchased and completely, com completely given freely to you by Christ. This means that coming from a good Christian family um, doesn't add to it. Growing in your theological knowledge and all the books that you read, that we read, doesn't add to it. Being consistent in your daily devotional life doesn't add to it. As good as all of those things are, brothers and sisters, none of that can add one drop to your salvation. And when we get this truth that we can do nothing to earn it, we also realize we can do nothing to lose it because it's fully in the hands of a powerful Savior. And when that truth sinks deep into our hearts, Brothers and sisters, that becomes then the engine to our obedience. See, what the Judaizers thought Paul was doing in throwing the law of God out and disregarding it, Paul was actually putting the law in its right place after salvation, after being, uh, being accepted by God through Christ. Now, out of joyful obedience, we can worship him. We can walk with him out of that acceptance out of that place of rest this issue of uh, justification by faith alone uh, this year actually marks the 500th anniversary of the of the protestant reformation this truth justification by faith alone is one of the the, the core truths core reasons for the spark of this protestant reformation by martin luther and it's one of the reasons why we are sitting here today. As I said earlier, brothers and sisters, when the church throughout history gra grasps this doctrine, it walks in such freedom, grace, and peace, and joyful obedience. Listen to what uh, a theologian, R.C. Sproul, says on this topic. He says, The simplicity of the gospel and its depth, its incomprehensibility, come together precisely because of its very nature. It's not about me, but about Jesus. Not about working, but resting. 
not about cooperating, but about being born from above. This is why Luther so potently saw the connection between justification by faith alone and the bondage of our wills. We were dead, but he made us alive. We were sinners, but he declares us just. He is, of course, at work in us. We are growing in grace, becoming more and more what we are now declared to be. We do so, however, listen to this, by entering more fully into the gospel, by remembering that our sin became his, his righteousness became ours, his life for our death and his death for our life. And the Judaizers were saying, no, what you're doing is making God out to be a servant of sin because you're disregarding the law. And so Paul defends himself from that false statement in verses 17 and 18. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And Paul says, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So Paul replies to that charge of the Judaizers by saying, certainly not. Uh, actually, um, to what, he's, what he is telling the Judaizers, actually, um, I've, I tore down that view of obeying the law of Moses to be accepted by God when I believed in Jesus for my salvation. And to rebuild that structure, to rebuild that, that line of thinking again in my life would really actually, that would prove me to be a transgressor. That would prove a greater sin to try to rebuild a system of thought that I had let go when I realized that my acceptance is found in what Christ has done for me. And if anyone knew the law, it was Paul. Pharisee of Pharisees. And in verse 18, this, this is what he's doing. He's alluding to this old life of his as a Pharisee, saying, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. This is the same life that Peter once lived as well as a Jew by birth, living under the law of Moses. But when he also believed in Christ, he let go of that system of thought. But then we find Peter shrinking back from that um, gospel of grace and beginning to rebuild what had already been torn down. When he distanced himself from Gentile Christians. And if we're honest, brothers and sisters, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we're no different than Peter, right? Peter often gets a lot of slack in the scriptures, right? He he told Jesus, I'll go to death. I, I will die for you. And Jesus is like, you're going to deny me three times. And he goes off and denies him. Right? Jesus tells him, come out of the boat and walk to me. And he does it. And then he takes his eyes off of Jesus and starts sinking. But, but we're all like Peter. You have mental assent to correct theology. Uh, but at times in our life, functionally, we begin to believe that we can add to the gospel that we need to add to the gospel for justification for being made right with God and often this is led by our emotions and not by what we know to be true 
So if we can be honest with ourselves today and ask ourselves this, this question, uh, what, what would the answer be for you? What is it that you are trying to add to the gospel? To what else are you trying to add to Jesus in order to be made right with God? Is it, is it Jesus plus approval of man? Or is it, is it good things like Jesus plus uh, uh, growing in your biblical knowledge? Is it Jesus plus finally overcoming uh, that, that weakness or that sin that seems to always come knocking at your door every week? Is it Jesus plus finding a spouse? Is it Jesus plus the next step in your career? Because if we're functioning as a Judaizer, brothers and sisters, and we're trying to earn, as long as things are going well, we feel accepted by God. And then the moment that we get fired, the moment that we realize that um, our plans have come crumbling down, we begin to look up into the heavens and, and, and think that maybe God is punishing me. Maybe I'm not in a right relationship with God. And this is why I believe uh, Paul's next words are about identity in the finished work of Christ, something that is unshakable, the only thing that is unshakable. And he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In this verse here, uh, brothers and sisters, verse 19, uh, as I was prepping this sermon, is what caused the gospel for me to sink deeper into my heart, almost as if it was sinking for the first time. The, the reality, brothers and sisters, that the, the judgment we deserve that was required of us because of the law was over my head when Christ took it upon himself on that cross, I objective like it's an objective reality that i died with christ and so in the old testament when the law would 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 condemn someone to death and they were stoned to death and then they died can the law do anything else to them if they've already died there's no more power that the law holds over that person and for us those who have believed in christ and who are in christ when he died on that cross we died with him. Our life ended at that moment. And when he rose from the grave and gave us this new life, we now realize that we're walking, breathing, living a life that does not belong to us. But it is the life that Christ gave to us, which is why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I said earlier in, in the first gathering, it's as if you're on, a, on your deathbed and, you, and, and then the nurse sees that flat line and you're pronounced dead, but in some miraculous way, you're connected to a life source of another and you come back to life. You'd be very aware that, that you died and, and the life you're connected to doesn't belong to you. It belongs to another who graciously gave you of that life. And that's what 
That's the reality and, and our identity as Christians, brothers and sisters. We are connected to the life source that Christ gave us through his resurrection. All of this was accomplished by him out of love, giving himself up for us because he loved us. And when we, when we grasp this, that Christ went through the most excruciating pain of being uh, punished under the wrath of God, the Father, for our sake, to bring us into his family out of his great love for us, when that sinks deep into our heart, that becomes the engine to our obedience and then because of that, we glorify, we, we magnify the grace of God in our life instead of nullifying or making it void. And we're deeply rooted in the fact that the work is finished. When we rest in that, then we can truly work from that rest. So let us, let us constantly, brothers and sisters, preach this gospel of grace. I found it, find it ironic that it was Peter who always kept forgetting this gospel and in, in his letters, if you read First uh, and Second Peter, Peter often says, I, I, I remind you this because you forget. He knew very well that he was prone to forget this gospel. And we, we must be aware that we're prone to forget it as well. So let us constantly preach this gospel of grace to ourselves, to each other. Diving, diving deeper into this, this truth, let it, let it also... Um, be on our lips constantly as we hang out with one another, as we uh, gather with our parish family, as we sit for dinner, drinks, or coffee with friends. Let it be constantly on our mind and on our lips often. Our identity informs our, our activity, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, we are in desperate need of your grace. We can do nothing apart from your power. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us, that you would allow this, this truth, that we find this rest from our works in the finished work of Christ. Let that for us become sweet. Let it become um, what gives us rest. And out of that rest, let us joyfully respond with worship and obedience. We need you, Lord. Um, we pray that you be with us in Christ's name. Amen.